Well, I've been requested to speak on Esther. Um, so we'll give that a go. We'll attempt to speak on Esther, chapter one. We thank you for the reading. It was, there are some difficult names in there, of course, to, to, to read. And um, I'm assuming that others will come along week by week. In the following weeks, look at chapter two and, and beyond. And so I'm in the privileged position of starting you off, if you like, setting you off in the right direction, a bit like a, a, a boat or a plane taking off, trying to go in the right direction. Well, the book of Esther is a, is a narrative uh, within the history of the salvation of God's people, and that's crucial for us to remember. It's one of two books in the Bible that are attributed to women. The other one, of course, is Ruth. And other than the, the fact that the story is about the Jewish people, there's nothing obviously Jewish about it in the religious sense. If you look, perhaps later on, it, it doesn't contain the name of God at all in the book of Esther. There's no mention of Jerusalem, even though the Jews had returned from exile at this point. There's no mention of a temple. We don't see any mention of anybody praying. No one has an apocalyptic vision. And there's no apparent concern for the law. One might say there's no miracles, but perhaps there is. We'll come on to that later. Time is not consistently portrayed. Uh, chapters one to four are over a nine year period. So when you read it, you, it's almost like it's instantaneous, but it's not, it's over a nine year period. Whereas chapters five through to seven take two days in total. So time doesn't sort of continuously flow in the story. But you know the story of Esther, it's a delight for us. It's filled with irony and satire. And the, the narrative, the story, it chooses to include some facts and then other bits aren't quite so clear, they're a little bit gray. And we mustn't get caught up in too much of the detail. There's an element of ambiguity here and that's fine. We can learn to live with that, I'm sure. We can't look at it in a black and white sense as, uh, so, for example, we can't paint Esther as if she's perfect, because she wasn't perfect. And there's these grey areas. We need to remember and see the bigger picture, that God fulfills his covenant promises through his providence. And this is the big theological point in the book. And I hope that as other men come to preach to you, you'll see that theme running through God's providence for his people. Now, you'd be pleased to know it's not a history lesson um, that I'm attempting, but there is some important information, significant information that we need to set the scene in, in Esther. Um, we need to cover a little bit of ground, if you like, just to sort of set, set us off. So here we are, it's the year 483 BC, 483 BC. It's about 100 years after the Jews have been carted off 
into Babylon. So 100 years after the exile. And a lot had happened since then. Some of the Jews had gone back to Israel to, to resettle. They'd, they'd rebuilt the temple, or they were rebuilding the nation. But others had chosen to stay where they were, and they were scattered among the nations. Some, some of which were scattered in this great Persian kingdom. And Israel was part of this huge kingdom, Persia. The Persian Empire was the largest power on earth at the time. In fact, it was the largest that the world at that time had ever seen, a huge king, uh, empire. They thought that the sun never set on their empire. I don't think it's true if you work it out, but that's what they thought. It stretched from the Indus River in Pakistan to the upper Nile in Sudan and Ethiopia. There were 127 provinces, so a huge empire. We're talking about modern-day Iraq, Iran, Egypt, Israel, Ethiopia, a huge, I was going to look before on the, on the map, a huge area in the, in the, in the world. And the capital in the wintertime was a place called Susa, which we've read about in the account there. And that's in modern-day Iran. Right. To the northwest was Greece. And they were the big enemy of Persia. So they were to the north, northwest. And during the same century that Esther lived, Socrates was born. So he was born in 470 BC. And Greece would become the base of modern democracy. So we're tying these things together historically. You can imagine you know, ancient Greece was sort of alive and well then. Athens was at the zenith, the height of its intellectual influence at the time. Now, Trevor gave a, a test to the kids. I've got a quick test. Can anyone remember Pythagoras from school? Does anyone remember Pythagoras? What it, what it, what it, what, oh, there's a chap over there? Yeah, he remembers it, right. My kids say to me, Dad, why do we have to learn about Pythagoras? Nobody uses this stuff, you know. Sadly, I have done quite a lot in my career so far, but um, yeah. So Pythagoras was around at the time. Now Xerxes, we'll come on to his, his few names in a minute, was the king of Persia. That was his Greek name, his Greek translation, Xerxes. The Hebrew name, which we had read, was Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus. Apparently that's how it's pronounced. And that's the one in the ESV. And he came to the throne in 486 BC, and he was born in 518 BC. His actual name in Persian, I'm not even going to try. Um, and I'm going to refer to him as Xerxes because it's just easier, <laughs> so if you don't mind. Um, it's quite funny because the Ahashwiros in Hebrew means king headache, <laughs> which is really amusing, and I can understand why. But think of beards, big beards. Xerxes was apparently the tallest and most handsome of the Persian kings. 
an ambitious and ruthless ruler, a brilliant warrior, and a jealous lover. This guy thought he was the real deal. So King Headache, Xerxes, he reigned from eight, sorry, 486 BC to 465 BC. And this feast was in 483 BC. So Xerxes was about 35 years old at the time. Now, although he was over a huge empire, he didn't have much military success against the Greeks. He had a bit, in fairness. He did conquer Athens briefly to revenge his father, avenge his father. But the battles on land and sea uh, led to defeat for the Persians. And Xerxes generally went back to just cover uh, Persia. He was cruel to his enemies. He was cruel to his own people. So that's the general background. Perhaps other people don't need to do that next time. <laughs> but it's important just to give us an idea where we are. And let's just spend a few brief moments um, thinking about the book of Esther. Because there's a sequence of events that unfold. So I'll just recap them really quickly. So the first chapter we looked, we're going to look at. Xerxes' queen, Vashti, gets removed. That's the first bit, in one line. Then the beautiful Jewish girl, Esther, gets chosen to be the new queen. Her Jewish uncle, Mordecai, foils an assassination attempt on Xerxes. The king's advisor, Haman, hates Mordecai and gets the king to proclaim an edict to exterminate all the Jews from the empire. This huge empire to exterminate all the Jews. Esther and Mordecai and the other Jews mourn and they fast over this decree. And Esther bravely talks to her king, Xerxes, her husband, when she shouldn't have done. And Xerxes is reminded in a dream about Mordecai uncovering this assassination attempt. And Haman's wicked plan is uncovered. Haman is then hanged on the gallows that he erected to kill Mordecai. And the edict to kill the Jews is upended. And they, they issue a counter edict. Esther and Mordecai are favoured by Xerxes. And the Jews are allowed to assemble and defend themselves against their enemies. By the providence of God, there's a reversal of events. And the Jews are miraculously saved from extermination. So that's Esther. And it's important thing to remember that the Jews would have been wiped out from the empire. Including those that were rebuilding in Israel. So there's other stories, other stories you read about in the Bible. They, didn't, they had no idea this was going on. But they would have been wiped out by this edict. So the, the actions of Esther and Mordecai saved the people. Now, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, they talk about rebuilding Jerusalem and the Jews returning home. And then the, the post-exile books of 1 and 2 Chronicles, Haggai and Zechariah, Zechariah, were to encourage that remnant that had gone back. But this book, Esther, 
tells of the Jews from the perspective of those who didn't return, those who stayed in the places where they were and that played a crucial part of the history of salvation. Right, that's the background. So let's talk about Esther 1. The first point I want to make is this, that it's a parody of the kingdom of God, a parody of the kingdom of God. So let's recap it. Here we are presented with this king. He's got great power. He lives in, in majestic and lavish surroundings and he throws a great party for the people from all over the empire, great party. Let's face it, the guy is showing off. This king headache with a big beard, he's showing off. And he holds a display of wealth for the kingdom for 180 days, solid. A party for 180 days, solid. He's showing off his splendor and his glory. What a great king I am, he's saying. And at the end, he holds a banquet for the people for seven days. A big booze up, we might say in Yorkshire, for seven days in the garden, in the palace. He's full of his own ugly pride. Everyone from the least to the greatest is invited. There's fancy hangings in the gardens, material, seats made from fine marble and granite. Goblets of gold. And he allows them to drink as much as they want. Or as little as they want. No questions asked. This is a big party. Now the passage doesn't tell us this, but we, we know from history that Xerxes was plotting an, his invasion of Greece. He was trying to defeat the Greeks. And that's really why he was holding his big party. There's no such thing as a free lunch. <laughs> so they were going, not realizing this, but they were going, he had an ulterior motive. But whilst he's holding this party, Vashti, his queen, she has her own party for the ladies. One line, it tells us that, she had a party for the ladies. And then on the seventh day, when Xerxes and his colleagues are drunk, he demands that Vashti comes out in front of everybody wearing her crown. She was beautiful and Xerxes wanted to show her off, to parade her. But she says no. And that really embarrasses him. It really enrages him. And whether she was in a bit of a power struggle and refused him as a feminist, some might say, or whether she was just not willing to be paraded as an object for men to ogle at, perhaps. She was not willing to go along with the instruction. She was not gonna be demeaned, perhaps. Often the prostitutes and the concubines were brought out when the wine was flowing. Perhaps this was a way of her saying, that's not me. I'm not doing that. We don't know. But we know that it embarrassed the king. Right at the point, right at the point when he was really showing off his empire, 
So he consults his legal team who decide that she's got no right to, d to deny the king. How dare, how dare she? So he has her deposed. No longer is she called Queen Vashti, if you notice. She's called Vashti now. And more than that, they're so outraged by what she's done, they dream up a law. A law is required in the empire now that says in this vast empire, Every man should be ruler in his own home. How, da how dare she? Um, and Vashti then disappears. They're so terrified that the other wives will do the same. That they say, and I, I quote, there'll be no end of disrespect and discord. No end of, dis of disrespect and discord. It is laughable. Well, that's the story. Do you see the irony in it? It's a parody. It's mocking Xerxes. It takes the mickey, we might say. Here's the most powerful of men. So much so that only a few of his trusted men can actually physically get close to him. He is, with a small g, godlike in his own eyes. And his own wife won't do what it, what it instructs her to do. His own queen. She's the one who's closest to him. She's the one who's supposed to honour him. But she won't do it. And he needs a new law to deal with it. He needs a new law to pass to deal with her. It all gets blown out of all proportion. The whole thing is a parody. It's a parody of the kingdom of God because a parody is a humorous, a humorous I can't say the word, a funny, uh, exaggerated um, version of things. And although it's serious, there's irony in this story. It's a desperately poor imitation of the kingdom of God. Now, our modern day parodies are things like Austin Powers if you ever remember Austin Powers, a parody of James Bond. Or there's other ones like um, Robin Hood Men in Tights, if you remember that one. That was a parody of Robin Hood Men in, uh, the uh, Prince of Thieves. And the story's a bit like that. It makes a mockery of men to have this desire, this desire to have power, ultimate power. This all-powerful king thinks he's in charge of everything. He's no reference to God. He calls everyone together for a huge banquet, like the United Nations of the time. He's the main man. He's a great king. He thinks he can control everything and everybody. You know, later on, history tells us that he actually, when they were fighting the Greeks, he told his men to lash the sea, because the sea... <laughs> The sea sank his ships. So he told him, tell the sea off, because the sea wasn't doing what he wanted the sea to do. And what's so funny is his queen won't do what he tells, her to do, what tells him to do. And what's ironic is that she is banned from doing what she refused to do in the first place. She's banned from going to the king's presence. It's like she's saying, 
I told you that myself. I didn't want to go into your presence. Well, she's banned from it. It's this ironic picture of a true kingdom that's coming, that's partially come. It's a pathetic man-made version of the true kingdom. And this pathetic copy is repeated over and over in history. Little men who come to power for a time and they get it all wrong. And they think they can boss everybody else around pretending to be little gods in small, with a small g. Think about the gatherings in Nuremberg, if you've seen it in the history books, 1939, when Hitler was parading in front of the masses of his armies and his people. Think how powerful he'd become. He was trying to occupy a place that didn't belong to him. And that's what men do, time in, time out over the centuries. Because these pathetic little gatherings are nothing compared to the kingdom of God. Because this true kingdom is under the leadership of a worthy king, Jesus Christ. There's no ulterior motive with his banquets. There's no forced parading of human beauty. There's no drunkenness and shameful acts in his kingdom. God's kingdom is not like this one we see in Esther. He doesn't put his people to shame. He doesn't cast you out like Vashti was. Nor does he have something up his sleeve to demand back from, from you. You know, they were going to this banquet and actually he had something up his sleeve. He wanted something from them. Well, Jesus doesn't act like that. There's a true kingdom and it's now and it's not yet. It's a, it's a kingdom where truth and justice reign. It's altogether good. And God as his king and he's forever in charge forever supplying the needs of his people. And this is the kingdom of heaven that we read about in Revelation. And God will usher in this eternal kingdom and he'll dwell with his people forever. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more crying. There'll be no more pain. And this kingdom will be for all peoples, all races, for all time not just for a small time for all time the spirit of Christ is now at work is at work in the people groups across the entire world bringing people to faith and this kingdom is huge a true united nations and although picture language in Revelation, we see a much better image of a perfect city. Not the gold and the marble of Susa or the fine hanging cloth, but an eternal city. It's picture language, but it's trying to explain to you what it's going to be like. Made from the finest of stones and pearls, 
the finest things you can possibly look at and imagine. That's what God's describing. This is the kingdom to come, the true kingdom. And if you're a believer here today, you're sure to reach that ultimate kingdom because it rests on God, not on us. You're not quite there yet. You're still in this body of sin. But you'll one day see the king enthroned in heaven, the true king. He sat on his throne and he's going to make all things new. And that leads us to our next point. There's a true king and a true husband. A true king and a true husband. Now Xerxes' actions in this narrative actually point us away, point us away and towards one true king that we all need. Xerxes massively fails as a king and a husband, but Christ fulfills all we can imagine. You see, King Jesus, he doesn't make up stupid rules to keep us in line. He doesn't aggressively or abusively try and control people. Jesus is no tyrant. He deals with his people gently. Think about how he dealt with that woman at the well that we read about in the New Testament. He doesn't dismiss her. Others did. He doesn't. He doesn't push her away. Or the woman who's been suffering with bleeding for 12 years. He doesn't ignore her. No, he deals with his people. Just where they are. Just where you are in your suffering. And in your shame. Like he did with, like he did with those ladies. And so he does with us. He's gentle and he's lowly. He said so himself. Perhaps you're here listening to this story about Xerxes. And perhaps you're here for the first time, or a few times you've been here. And you're trying to work out, what's God like? I've heard about God. What's God like? Is he like Xerxes? And perhaps you think God is far away and he's, perhaps you, you even dare to think God's some kind of tyrant. You don't really understand what's going on. He's not. He's not like Xerxes. He's not a tyrant. He's gentle and he is lowly. This true kingdom is made possible because the coming of King Jesus the God-man. He came that we might have life. He came to suffer and die on a cross, a Roman cross, a cruel Roman cross, and to take upon himself the punishment that we deserve for our sin, for our shame, for our guilt. And we've got to come to him in repentance and faith and ask him to forgive us, to acknowledge our sin, before him to acknowledge that we need him there's nobody in this room who does not need jesus christ nobody we all need him 
And King Jesus, he promises to save us, to clean us up, to wash us white, to put royal robes on us. And we don't deserve it. That's a wonderful thing about the gospel. We don't deserve, none of us deserve it, not even close. But this is the King Jesus that we read about in scripture, that we know. See, Jesus not only reigns from India to Ethiopia, east to west, but in every nation, in every time, he's not simply king of the earth, he's king of the universe. I saw something recently that they haven't worked out how big the universe is. Everything's been thrown open. The scientists have realized there's some problem. I think it's bigger than they thought it was. He's king of the universe. He knows all these things. He is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Ultimately, King Xerxes' majesty and wealth and prestige, they disappeared. And everyone that had confidence in him, likewise. Not so with the majesty, wealth and prestige of Jesus Christ and all who rely and trust on him. Because he lives, we live. Because he reigns, ultimately we'll reign with him. It's unbelievable. We've raised to glory with him. And if you believe here today, Remember, you're united with him as, 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 as your king. You are united with Christ, not just for today, but for all eternity, to be united with the king of kings. And then the Bible gives us a picture of Christ and his church, the groom and the church as the bride. He is the true husband. Xerxes abuses his wife, abuses his position with his queen. He parades around, I wants to. In his drunkenness, he only values her because she's beautiful. He wants to take from her. And so is the case in this world that we live in, time and time again. Not so with Jesus. He loves his bride. He always cares for her, always loves her. And when Xerxes tries to create this farcical law to ensure that wives obey and respect the husbands and that husbands should rule over their own households, there's no need to create a, a law for the church, is there? The bride of Christ is saved by the husband, the church. And the church responds with love. There's nothing that can undo this love for the church. It's been written on the hearts of the people now. And nor is Christ fearful like Xerxes. He's not unpredictable. And he's not unpredictably violent in that way. Church, Jesus loves you in a way that I can't possibly try and tell you today. I can't get it across to you how he loves you. I took him to the cross because he loves you. And I urge you to live in ways that honor him, 
We could come and preach this passage in a very legalistic way. We've got to act in a certain way. That won't change our hearts. You're his bride. For which he died and for which he rose again. You'll see in later weeks that in chapter 2 that Esther replaces Vashti. Esther becomes queen. And through that position she helps the Jews, the people, um, and they're saved. That the, the true people of God can meet the true husband. He's the one who died on the cross for his bride. Yet it'd take 400 years, but he's on his way in Esther. He's on his way. We can see him. He's coming. And finally, hopefully much more quickly, the providence of God. The providence of God. Xerxes is trying to occupy that position that doesn't belongs to him, belong to him. He believes he's got all power. But the question stands, who is really in control of this world? Who is in control of this world? Many leaders think that they're in control, don't they? Even when Xerxes thought in his pride he was in control, God is fully in control of the story. And that's what's so amusing about the parody. That's why it's a, a parody. The Xerxes thinks he's the big man, but he's not. He's laughable. It was God's plan. It was in God's plan that somebody would come, Esther would come and replace Vashti. It was all planned out by God. Later in chapter 4, we read these famous words of uh, Mordecai when he's talking to Esther. And he said, but for such a time as this, she was called to be queen. There was a timing by God for her to be there, to save her people that they wouldn't be wiped out. And so it came to be. There's a big picture and that God is orchestrating history. He was bringing about the salvation of the Jews to prepare for Christ. Along will come the Roman Empire and then Christ will come. And then through him, the whole people of the world will be saved. You know, our day-to-day -day actions, what we do day in, day out, they matter. We're part of the story too. Things are not down to fate. The Persians thought about fate, but they're not down to fate. God is in control and he'll bring all things together. Why are you here today? Why are you here today? It's not by chance that you're here. Perhaps it might even seem to you that you're here by chance. I don't know. You're here to recognize who God is. He makes a claim on your life. All of you. He wants you to know him, to follow him, and to live for him. Will, be t will today be the day that you'll bow the knee to him? Today.
I've been reminded of a, a story that I've recently been reading about um, by the famous Welsh preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones. I've been reading his biography. And in the 1950s, uh, Lloyd-Jones was in Westminster Chapel at the time. But in the 1950s, there was a Welsh chap who had once professed Christ, but he'd gone on to ruin his life. He'd left his wife, he'd left his children, he'd gone off with another woman. Then she'd left him. She'd left him too. And then he was destitute. So there he is in London, destitute. You know, he solemnly decided one Sunday to end it all, to end his life. He was going to jump off Westminster Bridge down in London. And he was without hope, completely hopeless. When he arrived at the bridge, the, the Big Ben struck 11 a.m. And for some reason, he decided to go to Westminster Chapel to hear Martin Lloyd-Jones once again. One last time. And six minutes later, it took him to get there. He went into the building and he was in the staircase, if you like, at the back, coming in. And Lloyd-Jones was praying. And the words he said were, God, have mercy on the backslider. This man was restored in that very service. God captivated his soul again. This is the way God is. In his providence. If you're a believer today, be encouraged that he is in control. He won't let you fall. This providence of God applies to me and you. As God, God's will unfolds in our life, day by day, just in ordinary things. And our carefully laid plans so often fail. They're frustrated. I don't know, the car breaks down. You can't go on holiday. Something happens like that. We're not in control, are we? No matter how hard we try, we can't control things. And beneath the surface of the insignificant little things that we do, of the individual decisions we make, of the events of our lives. There's this controlling power, the hand of God, if you like. It can't be explained and it can't be thwarted. And this story of Esther illustrates that human action, the things that she does and that we do, is essential to this divine providence of God. He works it all together. He works all history together. It doesn't depend on what we do, if you like. It's incredible. So when you feel that God's not there, when you feel that God's absent, he is there. And he'll bring about his purposes in every event of our lives. It gives us such hope. And when we get to heaven and we see God face to face, he'll explain to us What's going on? It'll explain to us how it's all been woven together. And I think we'll be gobsmacked. It'll explain, this is the reason why this happened that day. 
And this is why this happened this next day. And you'd be be unbelievable why, but God's in control. And it's a messy world. We're only here for a time. Ultimately, our power rests in weakness. This message that we carry, this gospel that we carry, it's foolishness to the world. It's in weakness. It's by the cross that we're saved. And God has chosen the weak things, the things that are not, to shame the strong. Perhaps like Xerxes, there's a rash tyrant wielding power over you. Perhaps at work, they seem to hold all the cards. And you know, it's really difficult and you're really tired and fed up. Remember that God's in control. Don't fear, don't be anxious. I'm, I'm preaching to myself more than you. Don't be anxious. God can remove people from the situation. Remove people from the scene and he can plot a different course. He knows all things, he'll sort all things. And in the meantime, we just need to be loyal to Christ. To follow him, to be obedient to him. Because to be obedient to him is to be assured of that certain victory in him. It's his victory. You can name all these great superpowers, the Persians, the Romans, I guess the Americans now. But they won't stand ultimately. Only the kingdom of God stands. Only the kingdom of God will remain. For it it will be brought about, it will be sustained, and it will be glorified by God himself. We'll leave it there. Shall we finish by singing? We're going to sing the final hymn. uh, When peace...